Well, hey, guys, as you are all making your way over to your seat and wrapping up your conversations, uh, we do have some announcements for stuff that's going on uh, this week into the weekend, and I'm excited to go ahead and be able to walk through that with you guys. Uh, the first thing that I want to bring up is that we have a prayer intensive that's going to be happening tonight at 6 o'clock, right? 6 o'clock? Yeah, 6 to 7, and that's going to be uh, part of our prayer ministry. They're going to be walking through uh, some tools that we use to pray and to be able to utilize those. So uh, come back for that tonight at 6 o'clock. Uh, one other thing we're doing that we're really excited about is those baby bottles over on the kids' booth are part of our partnership with Stowe Mission and their Pregnancy Resource Center. So they are a ministry that helps uh, young families and young mothers um, in crisis from whether it's financial or social situations. So we would hope that you guys would go, you would take those home, uh, you would pray for the ministry, and also just fill it up with any sort of like spare pocket change, stuff like that that is um, available to you guys, and then bring it back in. So if you guys could do that, we would really appreciate it, and would be a great way to partner with that ministry. And then also, we have a baptism gathering coming up on Sunday, June 26th. So if that's something that you want to step into, uh, feel free to come up and talk to me or one of our elders or one of our uh, other staff people, Hannah, Randy, uh, anyone sort of in that category. People, we'd love to be able to talk that through with you and uh, get you on the roster for being able to be part of that gathering. Uh, so we are going to be in Philippians 2, 1 through 11 this morning, and the title that I've given to the sermon is, What Does God Know About Service? Because I think as we work through our core values and as we work through the five weeks of which this is the fifth, and we come to the idea of service, it can feel kind of odd to think of God as a servant. You don't really think of your boss as a servant, you don't really think of your director or your VP as a servant, but how does the most powerful person in all of existence, God and his uh, Trinitarian greatness understand what it looks like to be a servant. Well, this morning I would argue to you that in Christ God does not remove himself from what he would command his people to do, but rather exemplifies and embodies it. And if not, that's not the main idea, um, Hannah actually spent two hours yesterday with some women in the church uh, going over this passage for two hours, so if I am not correct, I'm sure I'll hear about it. Uh, but thank you so much for keeping me honest. I really do appreciate it. It's a ministry that we all need. Um, but yeah, so I'm excited to get into it because uh, here at Maranatha, we put a high value on service as one of our core values. Because as believers, we understand that we emulate the servant heart of Christ, not because God needs anything from us, but that our heart might be set on that which is eternal, and that our hope might be set on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So we serve by practicing sacrificial love to our neighbor, the stranger, the widow, the hungry, the sick, the imprisoned, and everyone else. So through our serving, we testify to God's sufficiency and the abundant grace in our lives that he provides. And when we talk about service, I don't want to just tell you what to do. I don't want to give you guys a punch list that you can go out and accomplish and check off your boxes. First off, because I would forget something. And second, because I'd be worried that we would feel content to stop being a servant after we complete the things that we are doing to serve. Far be it from us as a community of gospel-driven people to kick up our feet once we exhaust the easy, broadly applicable list of things, of sort of descriptions of what it looks like to be a servant. Instead, what I want to speak to you on this morning is the source and the sweetness of what it means to be a servant as someone who is conformed to the image of God in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, our Messiah. Because he is our great high example for what service is. Because ministry, as we're going to come to understand it, is innately tied to service. And it's rare that we would be able to do the work of the gospel without our efforts being oriented toward the instruction or encouragement or edification of someone else. If all that our elders or staff people did here at this church was learn more about theology and soak it in and talk to each other about it, but never stepped out in service, never prayed for the membership or our community, then we would 
would be doing our jobs wrong. If we did that as Christians, we would not be living up to the fullness of what our calling is in the gospel. And in Paul's epistle to the Romans, he equates a self-seeking, self-serving lifestyle as a disobedient lifestyle, no matter how theologically correct or proper it might be. And as we find ourselves called to a life of service towards others in the name of Christ over and over again, I hope that we can unpack this call through Paul's example in his hymn uh, to Christ in his letter to the Ephesians. So I would pray that we would read this together with open hearts and open minds. And if you would stand with us for the reading of God's word, I'll meet you in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God through Paul to the Philippian church, beginning in verse 1. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this morning, for this community, for these people. Thank you for being the one to have first served us, to not remove yourself from what you have commanded us to do. But God, thank you that in Christ you have set the example. Father, I pray that we would embrace our servant identities in Christ this morning, and I pray that we would delight in you because of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm going to warn you from the top, by the way, this is one of those funny passages where you get the application before you get the explanation. So Paul is going to tell us what to do before he explains why we need to do it. And the outline that I want to give you guys for the sermon so you can have something to track along with me is the idea that our service in this passage can be described in three ways. This one mind that we're called to in Christ sort of has three different facets. We are single-minded, we are others-minded, and we are Christ-minded. What I mean by that is hopefully going to become clear as we unpack and go through this, but I want to start off in verses 1 through 2 where Paul writes to the Philippian church, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So the question that Paul is asking here essentially is, what do we have in Christ? This so-if clause that Paul gives us here serves to almost say, if this is true, then this should be the way that we respond. And he starts off by saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ. And a note on encouragement that I want to bring up is that when we talk about being encouraged in Christ or being encouraged by people, there's a distinction there. Because I think that we are really only able to be encouraged by or from people, but we are rarely able to be encouraged in people. We are not united to them in the same way that we are in Christ. So as much as I might love my fellow elders and teachers, my fellow uh, staffers and service members, people that are in my community, they aren't going to be my savior. 
their righteousness doesn't apply to me in the same way that Christ's righteousness does. I can't pray to them that they would be a source of grace and comfort for me because it's only in Christ that we can hide ourselves. Our teachers are only our teachers. They are not our saviors. So if you're coming here today and you're hoping for some kind of salvation from the grammar of this sermon or some kind of redemption from the beauty of the worship or the liturgy while divorcing the means of grace from the source of grace, then you've come with an empty hope. Then you've come with a shamble of what should be. But if you've come here today instead to encounter the Word of God made flesh, if you have come to encounter, rather, Christ than just a sermon, if you've come for the Word of God rather than the words of a sermon, then you have a solid hope because it's only in Christ here today that we can find encouragement. We have to see Christ as more than simply a teacher or a good example, though praise be to God that he is both, as Paul explains. But Christ is first and foremost the means by which we are united to God and able to do anything as a service to God rather than an indulgence of our pride or our aspirations. But to get there, we probably have to get through more than the first eight words. So when Paul continues on in these first two verses, when he talks about how if we have any encouragement in Christ, that's what he is getting at. But he's also mentioning that if there is any comfort from the love of a God that has not abandoned us, if there is any participation in the Spirit from a Messiah that has given access to us to the abiding presence of God, if there is any solid promise in Christ, it is in Christ. If the Philippian church continued in their faithful adherence to Christ, they would complete this joy by sharing in the same mind that Christ had regarding the way that this church would conduct themselves in the light of their affirmation about Emmanuel. So in doing this, we are of the same mind, the same love, we are in full accord or in complete agreement with Christ's demonstration of this to us as we work out what it means to be the local church. And when Paul is talking about being of the same mind, the word that Paul uses here in the Greek implies careful planning. It is proneo. It means to employ one's faculty for thoughtful planning with an emphasis upon the underlying disposition or attitude. Said simply, it's Paul saying, hey, when you think about these things, you should think about these things in this way with this kind of motive. This is not something that you just stumble into. This is a premeditated position that we take because we understand the surpassing value of serving one another well. So then we find that we are united and single-minded in our mission, in our goal to serve the community well and reflect the goodness of the gospel that we would not be sidetracked by our desire for comfort or seduced by our desire for power. We should be focused entirely on what Christ has called us to do. We should be single-minded in that way. But Paul doesn't stop there. We aren't only to be single-minded, but we are to be others-minded as well. We can't just be navel-gazing here at ourselves in this church building, in our community. We need to go out and be the gospel to people in the world. We need to be the hands and feet of Jesus as Paul commands the Philippian church that we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, I would remind us that if we are to be a people that seek the increase of Christ's kingdom rather than our own, I would also remind us that if we seek friendship with the world or the ways of the world, we are seeking enmity or disassociation with God. Because being a Christian sometimes means you extend yourself generously in ways that wouldn't make sense in the common calculus of the world. You wouldn't extend yourself in ways that wouldn't fit into the vision for a life that values profit over the extent of everything else. Because the gospel is in no way a capitalistic system. The chief end of man is to glorify God, not to make the most money in the shortest amount of time. 
And it's a good and respectable thing to want to provide a life for your family and to have a roof over your head. However, I would caution you to remain mindful that one of the first things that we tend to do is idolize our bank accounts. And if we don't idolize our bank accounts, we can idolize our watches. We can be selfish and ambitious when it comes to the way that we spend our money, but we can also prize our time as the one thing that we can never get any more of and guard that even more jealously. And the Bible's not silent on this. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about how we should be making the most of our time because the days are evil. We can let time slip away and not properly utilize it for faithfulness and gospel ministry. But we have to understand that we are to be good stewards of this time because when it comes to both money and moments, we are sovereign over neither. We are creator of neither, but we are called instead to be good stewards of what God has entrusted us with. So seeking first and foremost to be healthy and wealthy, to have a lot of time here on earth, to be able to enjoy it in a good way, and to have money to spend while you're doing that can be antagonistic towards the upward calling that we have instead to be humble and holy. So when Paul encourages us to do nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit, he's calling us towards a humility that makes ministry to others in the service of the gospel for the betterment of their circumstances, the more important part of the arithmetic as we budget our bank accounts and consider our calendars. So the significance of others that we see here in our other-mindedness and ministry should be made evident by our humility towards them. And this other-centric humility is essential to our thinking about our service ethic as the church, but it's not the core of it. It's not the most essential piece of it, but it is important. That core piece comes later in Paul's argument. But this radical reconsideration of our worthiness prompts us to, instead of fixating on ourselves, to focus on meeting the needs of our community. And we should meet these needs as Christ met these needs, not neglecting what is needed physically, but also making a priority that we would meet people's chief spiritual needs. In Matthew 4.23, the gospel notes that Jesus did not only proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, but also healed every disease and affliction amongst the people. James 2 similarly admonishes us that it does no good to wish someone to have a great and healthy and happy day if you don't make a way to provide the means for that person and what good would it be to wish them that, but then also to leave them in their circumstance if they need something from the church that it can provide? At the same time, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul notes that he would know nothing amongst the Corinthians except Christ and him crucified. That they would be reconciled to God is their greatest and most pressing need, but it is also important that Christians not be so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. So we should see to it that we are being generous not only in the way that we provide for people's spiritual needs, but also for their physical needs. It was a constant reminder for me from my youth pastor when I was growing up that growing up, I was not the point. That self-actualization for all that it might be esteemed to be in modern culture, it's not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is not that you would become the biggest, best person that you can, but that with John the Baptist, we would be convinced that Christ must increase and we must decrease. So part of this self-minimizing that we have to do that comes from humility and service is this shared interest having that Paul communicates here, of this other's mindedness. And if you are the only person that you ever think about, you are going to be the only person that you ever think anything of. What kind of parent would we hope to be? What kind of spouse would we hope to be? What kind of friend would we hope to be if we were the only person in the relationship that we would ever consider? And this other-focused consideration is exemplified perfectly in our incarnate Messiah. In the fifth and sixth verse, Paul writes that we should be having this mind amongst ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
This is Paul's justification for what Paul sets out in these first two passages. When he talks about how we should be united in our mission and focused on others rather than ourselves, not turned inward but turned outward, this is where this justification is coming from. So this is the reason why what Paul is setting out in these first four verses make any sense at all. So I want us to sit together in this for a second as I'm going to reread the last six verses for 5 through 11. I want this to wash over you as he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, what Paul has been referring to in these earlier verses in Philippians is not some abstract notion of what humility should look like. It's not some abstract notion of what unity should look like. It's not some abstract notion or non-physical idea of what service should look like. It is encased in the flesh and blood of our incarnate Messiah. So what rocks our world is the fact that God became man and suffered so that man could draw near to God and be glorified. This is where our example, our hope, and our conviction to live life in humility that leads to service comes from. This is not something that God is just speculating on and saying, well, I know everything, and I think this would be a good idea, so you should go and do it. What God is saying is that I have lived this for you. And one thing I want to clear up is that when Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, he means here that he is referring to the underlying reality. He is not playing dress up. God is not sort of looking at Jesus and saying, well, you know what, Like you're trying your best, so I'm going to allow it. But Jesus is, as the Nicene Creed says, God of God, light of light, begotten of the Father. He is in the form of God because he is of the same substance of God, because he is God. So then when he takes on the form of a servant, he is really and truly becoming a servant. Along the same line, when Paul says that he was born in the likeness of man, it's not saying that Jesus sort of resembled us or he just appeared to be human. That was a dose of his heresy that was sort of debunked in the second century. But what Paul is saying here is that he is in the likeness of man because he is like us in every way. Again, Jesus is not playing dress up here, but really and truly assuming humanity without ceasing to be God at the very same time. So taking on this humanity is the means by which he empties himself. He does not simply dial back his divinity until he waters it down enough to be something approaching humanity. And this unity between Christ's human nature and his divine nature, if you're looking for a 20-point Scrabble word, is referred to as the hypostatic union by theologians. It is this Christ becoming a servant, becoming human, taking on flesh. And in Christ becoming a servant, his service is relevant to us. He met us in our need, not where he thought we should be, but where we actually were. Christ did not come to find us in Eden, but he met us east of Eden in the land where we lie to our God and we kill our brother. So we find that Jesus does not meet us on the stairway to heaven, but instead descends into hell to meet us, to come and save us. And it's in this unity that he assumes between the divine and the human that he demonstrates ultimate humility beyond whatever we could hope to display. Because while we may demonstrate a humility of degrees, Christ demonstrates a humility of kind. And what I mean by that is that we may view ourselves as condescending to the status of someone that is lower down on the socioeconomic ladder than we are. We could choose to serve in a soup kitchen, or we could choose to be a missionary in a foreign country with a different standard of living, 
And we could see ourselves as helping those out who are in desperate financial or social situations. But we could also develop this savior mentality that doesn't have any place in scriptural Christianity. But it's a true and good testimony to us that we are all desperately in need of a savior while not actually being one ourselves. We are at best trying to get the dirt out of our eyes while our hands are caked in mud. We are still going to be miserable at the end of our failed attempts to be saviors to fix the thing that is plaguing us and our neighbors because we are already dripping in that which is making us suffer. But what Christ does in his incarnation, however, is more and fundamentally beyond this. This is more shocking than if the most powerful businessman in the world decided to step down from his ivory tower and concern himself with the common affairs of someone who is working in his factories. So imagine uh, sort of like a classic American like royalty figure like Henry Ford or John D. Rockefeller coming to a local assembly line or gas station and sitting down and asking the hourly employees if they were enjoying their job, if they had any questions, if they needed a snack, if they needed a drink, if they were doing anything after this. It's this frightening juxtaposition of that which is greater concerning itself with that which is of less regard. This is more staggering than if a son decided to concern itself with the well-being of a candle. And his humility is a rallying cry for Paul because it is so radically different and greater than our own. Instead of simply driving downtown to serve one person or one community of people, he served all people by stepping down from heaven, down from divinity into humanity, down from the infinite into the finite, and assuming the form of a sermon, becoming in the likeness of man. And this disarms us. It makes us reckon with the fact that even in our greatest disparity between those who we serve and the person that we are, we could never be further away from that. We could never be more humble than what Christ has done. And we have no right to count ourselves as greater than someone else and thereby exempt us from serving them. Because Christ did not meet us halfway. He met us all the way. Christ, in his example to us, did not wait for us to commit to becoming better before he chose to serve us. So we can often fall into the trap of saying that God helps those who help themselves. But on the contrary, and the argument from Scripture, is that God helps those who are completely unable to help themselves. Dead in sin and wrapped in unrighteousness, Christ goes to those who would not only never choose to serve him, but that actively struggle against him. In his sermon at Pentecost, I would remind you that Peter preaches to the crowd the gospel of the Messiah that they had a hand in putting to death. What do you think Peter would encourage us with today if he knew that we were willing to write some people off because we think of them as too far gone, as too different, as too other, that our service could only ever extend to people that are similar enough for us to relate to? I think he would encourage us that we should not rob ourselves of the grace that would be ours by seeing God work the unthinkable in someone's life. Because while we may be discouraged by their, th- by their sin, while we may be discouraged by our shortcomings, let us never be unconvinced of the mercy of God to bless our attempts to serve others. Richard Sibbs, in his meditation on the gentle ministry of Christ, both to the one serving and the one being served, puts it this way. Let us not, therefore, be discouraged at the small beginning of grace but look on ourselves as elected to be holy and without blame. Let us look on our imperfect beginning only to enforce further striving to perfection and keep us in a low opinion of ourselves. Otherwise, in case of discouragement, we must consider ourselves as Christ does, who looks on us as those he intends to fit for himself. Christ values us by what we shall be and what we are elected unto. We call a little plant a tree because it is growing up to be so. Zechariah 4.10 says, Who has despised the day of small things? Christ would not have us despise little things. 
I would add to the good doctor's words that Christ would also not have us despise the helpless things, the needy things, the ugly things, the things that feel like they are less important, like we could be doing better things with our time. Because Christ would not have us despise sinners because they are not yet saints. Christ would instead have us wait in eager anticipation for the transformation that comes and can be brought about as a result of his obedience. As a result of his obedience. And we mirror this. We reflect this. We embody this because for the Christian, humility is not because for the Christian, humility is the door to service, not because it is something that we have decided is a more effective way to reach our communities, not because we have done the market research and decided that this is what people synergize the most with, but because God has demonstrated it as his grace to those that are completely broken and destitute because of sin in the lives of those who are without hope. We are made to be examples of Christ's humility here on earth as members of his body. And I'm indebted to Greg Gilbert for a sermon that he preached at a conference I attended earlier this year because when he spoke on this passage, he made me sort of grapple with something that I hadn't before. And that was that Christ did not only take on humanity for 33 years while he was here on earth, but that he remained in that humanity as he ascended, glorified and resurrected. And even now, at this very moment, we have in Jesus a human representative before God the Father. Because in becoming a servant, he became a human for all time to complete the work that he had done to be our great high priest if our salvation is to be effective. Because if we, present tense, have a great high priest, as the author in Hebrews would argue, then it means that Jesus has remained human and will remain human to serve us for as long as we are desperately in need of him into eternity. And this is the extent to which he has made himself a servant. He has become obedient in every way. He took up our humanity so that he could assume the penalty for what we had coming for our sin. And because of this perfect obedience, he was glorified by the Father. And because he is glorified and we are in him, we too can be glorified. So we in him have access to God, comfort from the love that he has shown us, and participation in the spirit that he has sent to us. And here in Christ's humble service, we find the hope for ours. That as we reflect him, we would become participants in his glory by the Spirit, not attempting to make much of ourselves, but instead attempting to serve him and become citizens of his kingdom. By following his example that Matthew twenty twenty eight lays out, understanding that he came not to be served, but to serve, I pray that we would not simply serve, but become servants that we would take it up as an identity in Christ and that we would not claim equality with God as a thing to be grasped like Adam did in the garden all those millennia ago, but that we would humble ourselves and in humility find that service is better than sovereignty. I'm reminded of John Milton's epic Paradise Lost where he mentions that Satan found it better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Do we think the same thing? Or have we found that in Christ it is better to imitate his humility than the pride of the world? I'm also reminded of the modern hymn, Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. What would seem humiliating to the modern American church is the great hope of the historical church throughout the ages. That we, in humility, would find glory beyond what pride could offer us. That in humility, we would be people that serve rather than people that demand service. And it's the solid testimony of God that we love because he first loved us and that we serve others because Christ first served us. 
And if we are to be participants in Christ's death, if we are to be raised in the likeness of his resurrection, then we should fear neither humiliation nor humble service. Because we find in the incarnation that they are the door to an eternal hope that will not fade or perish, that we have been adopted as children, is not the smooth and easy road to acclaim, but the hard and weary road to heaven. And it is our hope that with all creation that we would see Christ exalted, that we would kneel in heaven and confess that Jesus Christ, the servant, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people, for this community. God, I pray that as we are um, brought to our knees in adoration of you, that we would understand what it is that you have done for us in your service to us and that that model is what we should carry out in the world. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people. Thank you for an opportunity to worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.